I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. Would you like to come upstairs for some coffee? No, no, thank you, so I can't drink coffee late at night. It keeps me up. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. It's uh, it's it's Water Week. We're going back into it. We're, we're, this is a water, uh, a podcast about water just for you by the two guys that I know that know the most about water. So welcome back to the podcast, Simon Gawthorn and Jamie Thompson. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, hello. Um, yeah, I, I won't introduce you because I've done a podcast with each of you. So, I mean, you can, you can just, if you want to know more about Jamie and Simon, you can do that again. But as we said, this is a, this is a service to you, the listener. I don't know that much about water. You, you might think I do, but I don't. So I've consulted the experts. We've got Simon and Jamie here to give you a lot of complex theory about water, but we're going to simplify it, simplify it for you. So what, what do you reckon the listener is going to get out at the end of this? You know, you'll be able to make filter coffee better at home. You'll be able to make espresso better at work. You want to make a tweak. What, what, are, we, what are we expecting? Go ahead. I, think, I think what we want to get out of it is just an understanding. Um, Water is really important as we, you know, as we brew espresso, your dissolved solids are about 10%, so you're looking at 90% water. Filter coffee, you're looking at between 98 and 99% water. So it's a really important ingredient, and it's more not necessarily how to make it better, but just how to identify what it does so you can, so you can make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and about being able to replicate and predict what might happen or might, what might not happen because of water. Uh, this is, again, as Jamie mentioned, the other ingredient that we use to brew coffee. And a lot of the time it's not really controlled or it's not really considered. A lot of people view it as a binary situation where it's either oh, I have filtered water, I have unfiltered water. But it's a lot more complicated than that. But it's also not that complicated. And I guess as you mentioned, we're going to talk about water in a pretty simple way and try to demystify a lot of the scary terminology that a lot of people might have heard and don't really know what to do with that. All right, well, we've got, uh, we've got 12 points here that we're going to uh, break down. So starting with history of salt in coffee. Jamie Thompson, will you begin for us? Yeah, I guess it's something that uh, we see the water for coffee being a relatively new component to how we think about extraction and how we think about coffee. But if you think about where we come from, from the history of salt in coffee, it's something that older generations have used to um, combat bitterness. So the, there's an old theory of adding a little bit of just straight table salt. So, into so your espresso sort Into of your espresso, or? into a mocha pot, if it's an Italian brewed coffee, um, into your Turkish or Greek pot coffees, which tend to obviously be from really dark roasts, have a lot of bitter compounds. Uh, the sodium and chloride that comes off table salt is used to just reduce bitterness and increase the perception of sweetness. Um, in coffee? You, in coffee, you see it very similar in cocktails. Saline solutions are very um, prominent in cocktails, uh, especially ones that have um, amaros or bitter components. So it's a way to uh, balance those bitter compounds. Mm. And you also see that in food as well, using salt, um, well, again, sodium chloride, which is table salt in desserts to highlight the sweetness, maybe mitigate the bitterness in, in you know, chocolate cakes, for instance. So it is, it is used in many other industries and just um, than just coffee for instance yeah i mean it's always funny when you see like the the um the prominence of like something like salted caramel salt's been going into caramel for so long uh but it was became popular when we could say oh it's salted caramel so it's always a seasoning that's been used to enhance things that you want to increase sweetness okay all right so 
What, where's the best salt source? Like I always see pink Himalayan salt or you know Dead Sea salt. Where, like, what's do we do we know the origins of sourcing the best salt? I don't know the origin of mm. sourcing the best salt, but I I have done extensive testing on all of these uh, in the context of coffee and water for coffee and outside of that, you know, with cooking, etc. And obviously, you'll notice pretty big differences between pink Himalaya salt and then salt salt that come in, come from different um, places, etc. Um, do you know anything about that, Jamie, around like different qualities of salt? Yeah, it's obviously we talk about purity uh, and obviously the way it's sourced. So whether it is um, and the way you then extract that salt, whether it's from the water and you have to dehydrate it or if it's just a big salt rock that you're chipping off, uh, it, it, is, it does come down to purity. Um, so obviously within a, a lattice of a sodium chloride, you are still going to find uh, trace elements of other minerals in there. Um, so I guess the purer the salt... Uh, I guess the purer the flavour of that, and the, the, the I guess the more of those minerals you'll get. Salts as seasonings. We're at point number two now. Salts as seasoning, an extension of your rules cup and what we have preached. Absolutely. So, I guess for for anyone that doesn't have much context around minerals in water, the best way for me to explain it is. Again, when we're making coffee, when we're brewing coffee, we're essentially mixing two ingredients together to try to create something new. And that is literally like cooking. So what we're doing is we're mixing coffee beans and we're mixing it with water. We use water to extract some soluble compounds into coffee and then that gives us brewed coffee, right? Water has minerals in it. It has stuff dissolved into it, which are usually called ions. Ions are all these tiny little things that are dissolved into water that we don't necessarily see. And we'll come back to that and we'll explain some of that terminology later. But what happens is when we, when we have different stuff dissolved into water, they kind of act as sort of like flavor enhancement. They allow us to change the way coffee tastes, they change the texture of coffee, maybe the taste balance, the acidity, the sweetness, the perceived bitterness. And when I did my Brewers Cup competition and routine this year, I made comparisons with seasoning and minerals that we find in water. And... To me, I use, when I make water, when I dial in coffee, when I try to improve coffee by changing the water composition, I definitely look at it as a chef rather than trying to look at it from a very sciencey, scientific way. It's mainly around, when I, again, when I do it, I find that the best way to achieve the result that you want is understand how different minerals impact the final cup and have an idea of where you want to go with that, fin- with that cup of final coffee and taste it and go, oh, I want more acidity, then I'm going to decrease that. Or I want more sweetness, I'm going to increase this. I want to take a step back for a moment. So put yourself in the shoes of someone who's just bought an AeroPress or a V60 and they're tuning into this podcast, to want to, they want to learn more, and they ask the question, which we've all asked, why can't I just use tap water? Yeah, so, I mean, you can use tap water, that's fine. Um, will it taste the best possible? Probably not, but you can use whatever you want. Mm. Um, however, depending on where you are in the world, Tap water will taste different, whether mm. you're in Melbourne or Sydney. Um, I mean, anyone that's in Melbourne probably just... Oh, sorry, let me rephrase. You can use tap water. Why is it optimum to sort of use some sort of uh, water from a better source or to make your own? Yeah, I think with that is you're, one, looking for a consistent water source. Uh, obviously, there is a general analysis that you can find from most major cities of where your water comes from, from your reservoirs, of what's in it. And a lot of times is a lot of other stuff in there. that Particles of different particles, things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you will find as a really general rule of thumb that the more stuff that's in the water, the more you get out of your coffee. The more is not obviously what we're always aiming for. 
because it could be some negative components that we want. Trying to get a balance? Yeah. So what we're doing is why we would want to control the water is we want to, um, I guess, get the, the specific flavours that we're looking for. Mm. Well, um, so, so anything else on the salt as a seasoning? Uh, I think I cut you we'll off we'll come back to that. I think mm. we'll need to provide a little bit more context and explanation on some terminology first. Okay, well, now we need to explain the technical terminology, TDS, pH, GH, and KH. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm actually going to learn a lot here myself. So I skipped a lot of science uh, classes when I was young. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys, so take it away. That's all right. I guess let's start with the, the, the big one, which is TDS. A lot of people refer to... There are t- we talk about water uh, with um, a unit of measure, which is TDS, which is total dissolved solids, which is essentially how much stuff is dissolved into the water. Then the TDS gives you a quantity of things, again, that are in that water, like sort of like population of stuff, but it doesn't tell you what's inside. It tells you if there's a lot of people, for example, at a nightclub, but it doesn't tell you who's coming to the party. And so how's TDS measured for water? Using so TDS, a, the unit of measure is usually part per million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, a quantity of, of certain stuff. And it is measured, the way we measure it usually in cafes or in coffee is using a TDS pen. So it is a little like thermometer it looks like a thermometer it's a little device that you stick into your water and then it will basically measure the conductivity of electricity convert that number and then give you a number of how much stuff is inside of your water but to make it simple it just tells you roughly there is that much stuff into your water and that's not necessarily a breakdown of what it is it's a just the amount of particles in there sort of so to speak yeah so i mean we're not to jump ahead but when we talk about salt solutions and we're making specific ones with one mineral, when you measure those, that's the one mineral that's in there. So if you just to stick a TDS pen in your tap water and say for Melbourne you might find something between 26 and 30, you don't know what that 26 or 30 is made up of. It's, and yeah. Is there anything that the listener should differentiate here from if they've had exposure to a coffee refractometer? Yeah, so a coffee refractometer, uh, so you're looking at uh, parts per 100. So, mm-hmm. so with a f- brewed coffee at 1.3, Three-five percent, for example, that's one point three five. A brewed filter coffee. A brewed filter coffee. Uh, so that's like one point three five percent of dissolved solids are coffee solids, and the rest is the water component. The thing as well with coffee refractometers is that we measure total dissolved solids as a percentage of the overall liquids, rather than so basically measures the refraction of lights. Um, uh, won't get too technical into that, but it, the refraction of lights tells you how much stuff is dissolved, but that's expressed in percentage, whereas when we look at the TDS, the total is of solids into water, we measure that into parts per million or usually in milligrams per liter. So if you if you buy a bottle of water from the supermarket, we've got this delicious uh, Vichy Catalan um, in front of us and all of the minerals, all of the th- different ions are expressed in milligrams per liter, which is the most common unit for concentration to measure these different minerals. Okay. pH. So pH is the measure for acidity or alkalinity in water. So what pH, define alkalinity. Can anyone give me a the opposite of acidity? Okay, so like nulling acidity in a way, or exactly. Yeah. So pH pH is measured on a scale from zero to fourteen, right? Zero being the most acidic possible, and then fourteen being the most alkaline possible on a scale. If you have something that's sitting at seven, which is right in the middle, we consider that solution to be neutral. So the lower the pH, the more acidic the coffee, and then the higher the pH, the more alkaline, or the coffee, or the water, the whatever solution it is. So if acidity is yin, alkaline is yang. Yeah. Okay. I think the most important thing about that scale is that it's 
I guess I'm going to get a bit math nerdy here. It's a log- logarithmic scale. Mm. So uh, a difference between zero and one is ten times the amount. So there, so if something, um, say like hydrochloric acid, could be a, a pH of one, uh, something that's a pH of two is ten times less acidic than yeah, the pH not of two one. Times. And hydrochloric acid is highly corrosive, <laughs> toxic stuff, right? Yeah, I've worked with it plenty. Yeah, yeah. And, and and stuff at the other end, stuff at the fourteen end, um, is just as corrosive. So, w- so what's pH of water? Oh, that's probably a redundant question right, right now. Tap water is roughly around seven in yeah. most most places, depending on the level of again, usually bicarbonate or carbonate ions that you have inside of your tap water. But it usually would be sitting between uh, six point five to eight in and most so, places. In so world. we're looking at a scale of of one to fourteen, yes, and so one being you know melt your skin off, and seven being you can drink it. Yeah, you. I mean, lemon juice is sitting at around three. I think lime is sitting at around two point five. So like you can drink. Uh, I think Coca Cola is sitting at around three in yeah. pH. Like the, okay. there are very acidic uh, substances or very alkaline substances that are not toxic. Well, that's interesting, and, 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 and to me, it kind of drives home the point of what you're saying about the um, the multiplication of this, the math of this. So again. One, hydrochloric acid being literally will melt your finger off if you dip it in. Mm. And then three being Coke that you drink. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, I just learned something. Thank you, guys. Um, I mean, again, uh, this, is, this is my own personal little bugbear with some of those things where you see they'll sell alkaline water because uh, it's meant to, you know, change the pH. Uh, drinking like 400 mils of a water that's got a pH of eight is not going to change your internal system, which is like hundreds of litres of liquid. So... Oh, not hundreds of liters, but you know, like, so it's it's one of those things where um, the uh, ability for that to change uh, is is controlled by the substances that you're around. Okay, interesting. Any any other points on pH we need to bring home? Um, yeah, mainly that we. We often refer to pH for water. Obviously, it can you can measure the pH of any solutions or any liquid. Um, we don't talk so much about the pH of coffee or even the pH of water. This is something that I used to measure for consistency purposes, but I don't actually think that it tells you so much about coffee. It doesn't necessarily help you dial in your coffee. It's a metric that I think is worth mentioning because you see it around quite a lot, especially as soon as you start talking about water and all the solutions and other liquids. But I don't think this is a metric that necessarily helps you because acidity has to be taken into account with other components. So, for example, Coca-Cola sitting at 3 I mean, so three is a very acidic solution, but when you drink Coca-Cola, a lot of people don't necessarily think acidity. And the reason why the acidity doesn't, is not perceived as high as, for example, um, lemon. Lemon's also sitting at three in pH, roughly. Lemon feels a lot more acidic. You wouldn't be able to drink a glass of lemon juice, right? But Coca-Cola feels less acidic because it has a lot more body. It has a lot more sugar. So the level of acidity is sort of not perceived as high because we have so much sugar and then the drink has so much body. It feels a lot heavier. It's carbonated as well. So it, again, you can measure, you can measure the intensity of acidity with pH, but it's not necessarily how you're going to perceive it. Your perception of it is, is going to be different from that. Okay. GH, growth hormone. <laughs> <laughs> so GH is, uh, so some of you, most of you guys have probably heard of this terminology, so general hardness as a way to talk about water. So general hardness is basically the measure of uh, calcium and magnesium ions in water. And we use that a lot for water treatment, like swimming pools, or like if you have a fish at home, for example, or industrial processes. Um, The the main reason why we measure general hardness is to avoid um, the formation of um, lime scale, for example. So lime scale usually happens with 
uh, a certain amount of calcium plus bicarbonates. So these are generally levels that we try to monitor in order to avoid things that are not necessarily desirable. Now, there, I have a few issues with using general harness in coffee, and I know that you do too, Jamie. Do you yep. want to elaborate on that? Well, yeah, because, I mean, obviously, um, yeah. how did we say it before? We said it perfectly before. Um, yeah, so obviously when you're talking about general hardness, you are just giving a, uh, a scale of a total. So the way we get to salts in a liquid is by putting usually dissolving salts in there. So for someone to just say the general hardness is 80 of, you know, parts per million of magnesium, it doesn't tell you how that magnesium is there or how it's interacting. So these ions which are dissolved in water do not survive on their own outside of water. So they Remind me again, ions is energy? So I'll give you a quick definition of an ion, but it's a little tiny, tiny particle. It's mm. think of an atom that basically, as soon as an atom has gained or lost um, like electrical charges, it becomes an ion. Mm. And an ion cannot survive on its own; it has to be bounded with another ion, especially if it's in solid form. Basically, okay. yeah. so you can't find just magnesium. That's yeah. kind of what Jamie's saying. Yeah. yeah. So when we have sources of magnesium, we typically in coffee might be magnesium chloride or a magnesium sulfate. There are other ions around that magnesium. So being able to just say this has got 80 parts per million of magnesium doesn't actually tell you the story uh, because it's interacting with the other ions in the solution. Okay. So the other thing with my one of my other issues with general hardness is that, again, it's the measure of the population of magnesium and calcium ions. Uh, but again, it could be that, you know, if they say I have um, 100 ppm of, um, of general hardness, but it could be all magnesium, it could be all calcium, it could be a mix of both. Like, and these waters will taste very different. And I think that's something that the listeners need to understand. Magnesium, calcium as ions, I mean, pretty much every single ion that we will talk about, they taste very different. They will have a massive influence on the way coffee tastes. And Again, using they all play different roles as well. They play very different roles. Again, I, I look at them as seasoning. So to me, magnesium is maybe like table salts and then calcium is probably like, could be like uh, black pepper. So they bring different stuff. And if you say, me saying that, oh, this water has 100 ppm of general hardness is the same as saying, there's 100 gram of solid seasoning into this dish, but it doesn't tell you, or there's 100 gram of like salt and black pepper, but it doesn't tell you what proportions. It doesn't tell you if there's any chili, if there's any... Uh, vinegar if there's any anything else that you could have put into that dish and the other stuff are really important and we will draw up we'll, let's break down the, uh, the 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 holy trinity later um of the or the three that i know the three that i refer to as the holy trinity um kh unless of course you have more to say about uh, about general hardness um again just just for people to keep in mind you cannot find calcium on its own you cannot find magnesium on its own it usually comes i mean it always comes with something else you can think of them as little like couples um they're always in a relationship and you know in solid form they always come with a partner and again like you have a positively charged partner which is usually ma calcium your magnesium uh, your potassium your sodium and they come with another partner who is negatively charged once you put them into water they kind of split and they do their own thing and they separate but in solid form they always come together so again magnesium doesn't come on its own it's either often found in the form of magnesium chloride magnesium sulfate or some like very often magnesium carbonates especially in cafes so that's really important to keep in mind and general hardness has its limits because it doesn't take into account the other ion it's bound to, but also it doesn't take into account other things like potassium and sodium, which are very tasty in coffee. All right, KH. And a reminder, folks, this we're going to simplify this all as we go through and apply it to coffee, but let's, keep, let's, let's, let's drive home this point. Yep. Um, 
KH is, uh, do, do you yeah. want me to so, go? Uh, so carbonate hardness. So basically buffer. So it's, it's the... Does that play the role of alkalizing, would you say? Yeah, it's, the, it's basically it allows the, a solution to resist changes in acidity, changes in pH. So if you want to make a brew more alkaline, add buffer, would, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, if you want to reduce the acidity. Yep. I okay. think it's probably a bit easier for people to understand. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so that comes from a measurement of the carbonate or bicarbonate um, ions. Mm-hmm. So again, that is a partnership. So the typically when we are adding this sort of thing, we can't just add carbonate on its own. So we're looking at things like sodium bicarbonate or potassium bicarbonate. Um, so obviously we then know that sodium and potassium will obviously contribute a different contribution to the thing. But when we're talking about carbonate hardness, we're talking about that negative ion that's in there. So that, that is the component that will, um, yeah, that controls, basically it's the resistance of change of pH. Resistance of change of pH. Of change in acidity yeah. if, you, if you want. So the way to look at it is the more carbonate population, the more the carbonate people you have or bicarbonate people you have because they're kind of the same people, um, the more of them you have, the less acidic your coffee is going to be. Okay. I like that. So if there's no bicarbonate, usually you'll have the most, probably the most acidic version of your coffee. And if you have a little bit of bicarbonate, you will reduce the acidity in your coffee. Salt behaving as a salt in a liquid. Who, who, who wrote this one? Was that you? That was me. Okay. Yeah. This sounds like a very Jamie Thompson thing to just say. Just maybe one, one, just one quick uh, last my, thing on, on my carbonate apology, hardness. My um, yeah. same, same issue with general hardness as Jamie mentioned, just for people to keep in mind. When we talk about carbonate hardness, we talk about the specific population of negatively charged ions, which are generally carbonate ions or bicarbonate ions. These ones are what we call the nines. They're negatively charged ions. The problem with that is we don't know which positively charged ions they're bound to, and this isn't measured. So again, they can be bound to sodium, they can be bound to potassium, and also quite often in espresso machines when we use remineralization system, which we'll come back to, they can be bound to calcium and magnesium. But again, when you just look at your water for coffee with this general hardness slash carbonate hardness ratio, you're missing on a whole bunch of stuff that could be in your water and stuff that really matter and gives you this big picture for you to understand your water. Anything to add, JT? No, no. There's big All right, now, salt, salt as a salt in liquid. How it behaves in the liquid. So as we've talked about, the salt that you find in solid form is to, it is a positive ion and a negative ion. Now, water itself as a molecule is polar. So you've got uh, two hydrogens and an oxygen. Now, the two hydrogens are positively charged and the oxygen is negatively charged. Um, so just picture it looking like a, like a, almost like a pyramid. Um, so what we're actually looking at here is when you dissolve these um, salts into water is that all the positively charged ions are going to start hanging around the oxygens. So they're going to be attracted to the negative side of the water. And the negative ions, the bicarbonates, are going to hang around on the hydrogen side. So when we, um, as they behave within the water, as we said, if we're putting your calciums and magnesiums together, they're going to be attracted to the negative polar side of the water. So that's what happens is how you dissolve them is the strength of these negative charges and positive charges on water is what actually pulls the salts apart and dissolves them. So how they behave is they obviously dissolve going from being solid form into liquid without heating them up. Uh, And obviously the stronger the bond is when you might need to add more energy such as heat. So Mm -hmm. you think about table salt and if if it's a really refined table salt, you're able to just dissolve it with a bit of agitation 
Um, some of the other ones you might find, particularly things like calcium carbonate, where the bond is a little bit stronger, you'll often find a little of that precipitate out into the solution. You won't get that fully dissolved unless you add more energy, so either through further agitation, so like shaking it really hard, or adding some heat to it. So like kind of when I'm making my pasta and I want to make a really good quality pasta, I, when I'm boiling the water, I add a bit of salt to get that you know saltiness in the pasta. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, so mean, it's, I mean, you're... By adding salt to your water, you're like seasoning your pasta and then changing the, the flavor of it. Mm. Um, but I guess what, what Jamie is mentioning here is that not all not all ions um, will dissolve when they're in a water form, or some of them might precipitate. They might sort of like uh, regroup together. And there's always this law of attraction. So we mentioned that in solid form, you always have different ions um, attached to another one. So a positive always comes with a negative. In water, when I said that they kind of like do their own thing and they room freely, it's true, but it's not so true because the positive ones will be attracted to the negative ones. Again, think of them as people who are looking for like to be in a relationship. The positive is always looking for the negatives. And and sometimes, you know, if you add, for example, calcium chloride and maybe, for example, um, sodium bicarbonates in high concentrations, sodium chloride, um, calcium chloride, sorry, is uh, very easily soluble. So with a little bit of agitation, not so much heat, like it'll dissolve very easily. It's so a hydroscopic chemical in a lot of cases, right? Most, sorry? It's hydroscopic. What do you mean by hydroscopic? So, like it'll absorb the ox- oxygen around it, uh, the, sorry, the um, moisture out of the air around it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah definitely. They'll catch, they'll catch a lot of moisture. So it'll dissolve pretty easily. And it's the same thing with sodium bicarbonates. So these two will dissolve pretty easily. But if they're in high concentration, what happens is calcium and carbonate, they love each other so much. They're basically soulmates. Mm-hmm. And if they find each other within that water, they sort of like start to precipitate and to start to group and form and make little like clumps into your water. So if you see, if you try to dissolve calcium carbonate into water, you might find it difficult to dissolve it because these guys, calcium and carbonate, they're soulmates. It's really difficult to separate them. And then if you introduce them into different forms, they will sort of like group and bond together because again, they love each other so much. But it's not the case of every single ion. Some of them don't really like each other and they kind of do their own thing. But others, again, like that calcium carbonate, love each other so much that they sort of like bond together or it's hard to dissolve them. How much do they love each other? Is it like my love for cinnamon scrolls or, you know, I don't know if anything tops that. Oh, well, I, I would look, for example, um, you can use heat to try to separate them and you can try to agitate them and move them a lot. And then usually that will help you dissolve them. But as soon as the water cools down a little bit or as soon as the water settles, um, they love each other so much that they're usually going to group again. So more than... I'm probably more than, than uh, yeah, I guess. Okay. If I separate you from cinnamon scrolls, you probably... I don't know if you're going to run to one another, but um, these guys... Turn into like good. a crack addict behavior. <laughs> okay, all right. So um, sharing our thoughts on how little relevance this has and the need to be more pragmatic about it. Was that a you? That was a Jamie Thompson? That, oh, yeah, that was no, a, that that's was all a, me. That yeah, no, a, sorry, that's a little SG. Uh, that's a little rant uh, from me um, because a lot of the conversation we have around when I when I have conversation around water chemistry for coffee with with a lot of people, the main question people ask me is, or maybe not the main question, but a question that I get frequently asked is, what is your ratio of general hardness and carbonate hardness? And I think this is something that is completely relevant in the context of coffee because again, when we look at general hardness, we're only looking at magnesium and calcium. And there are a whole bunch of other ions that are not taken into account when you look at this model. Because if you just look at general hardness versus carbonate hardness, you're only looking at three types of ions. But for example, in the water that we're drinking right there, there's about seven different types of ions. So 
the general hardness versus carbonate hardness only gives you a snapshot of some population, but it doesn't take into account other stuff like chlorides and sulfates and uh, potassium and sodium, which all play a really important role. And m the, my whole point here is, I think as people who make coffee, for anyone that makes coffee at home or anyone that makes coffee professionally in a cafe or in a roastery, or even producers that you know try to improve their coffee or importers that trade these coffees, what we what most of us try to do is improve the way coffee tastes. And instead of trying to focus on ratios and high level sort of like theoretical things, I I mean I think Jamie would agree on this, but we kind of find this a lot more like pragmatic to just look at how these different minerals taste, and then if you have to make changes to your water, just go based of how your coffee is tasting. So for, I'll give you a very concrete example. Calcium chloride as a mineral, when you add that to your water, in small quantities, it'll make your water a lot sweeter. It'll make your water a lot rounder and it'll give you this sort of like pink, red, confectionery-like quality to your coffee. In high concentrations, if you had too much calcium chloride, you'll get this choky, rough, kind of dry, really flat quality to your coffee. It'll, it won't impact the pH. It will actually won't impact the acidity if you measure the pH, but it will it will overpower the coffee so much with that body and that chokiness. I think I did I, did, I accidentally did it yeah, once. So it kind of tastes like mushrooms. You? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and this is something that will hide some other components of the coffee. So instead of trying to focus on oh, is this ratio okay? Do I you know am I going outside of the uh, the recommended general hardness carbonate hardness ratio? Uh, my my recommendation would just be to look at it as seasoning. Again, you're making a dish. When I cook, uh, and I love cooking, when I cook, I will make a dish and I'll taste it before serving it and I'll be thinking, do I have enough salt? Is it spicy enough? Do I have enough acidity? And if I don't have enough acidity, I'll squeeze a little bit of lime juice or a bit of, uh, add a dash of vinegar to it. Or if it's not salty enough, you can add table salt, you can add pink Himalaya salt, you can add uh, soy sauce, for example. There's different things that you can do. And I think looking at it from sort of like a cooking point of view is going to help out a lot more people rather than trying to get stuck into ratios and into theoretical things. Again, like that general hardness, carbonate hardness ratio, because I find it a lot more useful to be able to understand how these different minerals taste so that you can understand your coffee. So to, to really learn that point, would you suggest dissolving them all into different concentrations, taking a sip or something? Or It's as easy as that. I mean, just tasting them, like, you know, dissolving some, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of each of these into demineralized water. So why demineralized water? Because we don't want any other ions. We don't want any other stuff in that water. So yeah, you can just fully, truly assess what calcium chloride tastes like, for example, and then taste that in water and then maybe just add a splash of that into coffee and then see what it does. Is demineralized and deionized water the same thing? Yeah, same thing. And you can have, well, sometimes people use pure water. Um, sometimes people use uh, uh, distilled water, like uh, demineralized water. Like it's all pretty much the same thing. The process changes, but the end result is we have water that has basically no mineral left into it, no iron left. Okay. And it reads your PPM if you measure it. What are some of the industry uses, or sorry, outside of coffee industry uses for demineralized water? Because I noticed, like, say, for example, they put it, they suggest you put it in your iron or something like that, like, yeah, you know, ironing your clothes to make them straight iron. Like well, for a car, for example, mm. like usually um, to to cool down um, to cool down your car, like you might need to use some demineralized water. The reason for that is because when it gets uh, heated up, if you have the presence of calcium ions and bicarbonate ions, which is very, these two are really often found in tap water in major cities all around the world. Like you find a lot of bicarbonate, you find a lot of calcium into water, 
when you heat these two up, again, they, they love each other uh, quite a bit, and then they will precipitate and they will form solids. And that's what we call the lime scale. And so it was just sort of clogged your engine. Yeah, kind of pipes. like it yeah. will it will clog the pipes. I mean, for some listeners that brew coffee, maybe in cities like Adelaide or Perth, and then they use tap water. Um, they, if you have a kettle, you boil tap water in these cities or in major European cities, you will notice a lot of lime scale, like this sort of like white mineral residue at the bottom of your kettle. Yeah, and that's why you'd use that for irons and anything else like that, because obviously once you've heated that water to create steam, and then once it cools down. Um, it sort of comes back to what you were saying before about when you add a small amount of calcium chloride and it tastes pink and you know sweet, and then when you add more, it starts to become chalky. If we do break it down to as a simple factor, calcium carbonate is chalk, right? So if you go get a piece of chalk that you use on a blackboard at school, it is calcium carbonate. So the more calcium we put in there, and if you are put any other bicarbonates in there, as we said, mm-hmm. those are the two that are most you know eager to be together. So what we're actually overriding when we're going from that sweet spot of what calcium chloride can do, when we put too much in there, it starts doing its own thing with the, the bicarbonate, so your calcium carbonate sort of forms. So that's why you're avoiding using any sort of minerals in water with those sort of um, with like those appliances. It's very funny that you mentioned that, and I, I think it, it will talk to a lot of listeners. Again, like chalk that you see um, at school, for example, is uh, literally like calcium carbonates, and then that's the... That's something that we can find in water, for example. And then that's why, again, when we go really high in calcium level and we go really high in carbonate level, we get this really chalky sensation, which is different from astringency or dryness. Like it's it's a really like powdery, uh, it's it's all also like a kind of like dry feeling, but it's, um, you know, again, I think you li- need to be licking a chalk to kind of know what chalky as a texture feels like. No, I think it's not, not particularly present. Yeah. <laughs> Does that remind you of uh, primary school or anything like that? I'll plead the fifth on that one from my American love before yeah. um, before the cinnamon scroll. Yeah, okay. let's but not go there. Um, why water is probably the reason your coffee tastes bad, and I think by now the the listener can and can somewhat understand. We've primed them to understand this, but let's go over it. So um, we established that if it's an espresso, you're usually looking as a ballpark, you know, ten percent of an espresso is dissolved coffee into ninety percent water. And that 90% water has a composition of different ions, chemicals uh, that we've discussed. And if it's for filter, you know, 1.35% of what you've brewed is dissolved coffee and the other 98.5% or whatever, or 98.65% of coffee is, a com- uh, is water with a composition of minerals, ions. With all that seasoning into it, basically. All that seasoning into it. So that is, that is exactly what your filter coffee is for those of you listening at home. So it makes sense, and so I'll, I'll say the uh, I'll say the punchline first, and let you guys uh, dissect it. But it makes sense to make sure that water is of high quality because it will dictate the quality of your coffee. Your, you know, it's like if you make an espresso with dishwater, you know, you, you you can expect it to taste bad, right? Yeah, that's yeah. that's spot on. Again, mm. I think most listeners have noticed the difference between tap water and then bottled water, and then the reason why. You know, some people love Evian is because like Evian is a, or Fiji water, for example, the pre like premium luxurious fancy water is that travel, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers to land on our tables in supermarkets. It's because they have a specific iron composition, they have a specific mineral composition that makes them pleasant to drink. And that's the reason why some coffees might taste good, because they have also a pretty good combination of ions that make this coffee taste good. And there are some combinations that are good and some combinations that are not so good. And I guess 
each coffee kind of needs its own unique combination for a specific purpose or for a specific for what you want out of your coffee like you know if i like a lot of acidity and then i might not want a lot of bicarbonate but then if you don't like acidity then you might want to add a little bit more so my preferences your preferences that's quite subjective and that's why we might see different preferences in terms of water that people use but if water is not something that you control and you buy you know good coffee from a, a specialty ca- cafe that you respect and um, and a place your, your local coffee shop that sells really good coffee when you go there they brew coffee it tastes pretty good and you know you've started investing into coffee equipment etc I, I bought a nice grinder and everything and you make it at home and it doesn't nearly taste the same as what you, you were experiencing uh, experiencing in that cafe it's most likely because of water yeah I, I look for me I think it's probably the cheapest way to get the best out of your coffee so rather than buying more expensive coffee, more expensive equipment. Um, it's as simple as looking at what water you are using uh, to get to the end result. So a lot of people, are, you know, without thinking about the water, are quick to blame, is there something wrong with the grinder? Maybe upgrade my burr set. I'm going to uh, you know, upgrade the equipment. I'm going to use 50 different filter papers to get... Is, is there an element of being able to sort of polish a turd here with your water? So say, for example, you do get a roast that's a bit, um, you know... It's not what you quite expected it to be, but you can build a water if you really wanted to to make that a... Absolutely, and I think that's the reason why sometimes we, we try coffee from different roasters from you know different parts of the world, and when we try their coffee, we go, this tastes terrible. I don't know why people like this coffee, because that roastery probably does quality control with a very specific water, which is very, you know, it's going to be dictated with what the local water tastes like if they only use a filtration system. Um, and for example, uh, a lot of... Coffee roasters in Melbourne have, you know, they probably roast a little bit darker than what um, some roasteries in Europe would be doing, generally speaking. And it's the same thing with uh, cities like New York, for example. Unless, like New York um, is known to be, like, to have a pretty soft water. So soft is the opposite of hard and it usually refers to low levels of calcium and magnesium or just low TDS in general. And you notice that cities that have a pretty soft water tend to roast a little bit darker than other cities. But when you take one of these, like, darker roasted coffee to a city that already has hard water, all of a sudden people go, well, this is a bit overwhelming because it was kind of roasted to a water that it was quality controlled with, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, 100%. And to give a, a real-life sort of application that you and I have tried, Jamie, is like you know, pulling, using a filter-roasted coffee to make an espresso and then adding like a touch of buffer like made up to that espresso to kind of make it more alkaline. Is that, am I using the right terminology here? Yep. I'm learning. So <laughs> increase the pH. Okay, so we're increasing the pH of the espresso after it's been extracted. So you make it how you would, and then it tastes, you know, as you would expect a light roasted filter to taste as an espresso. espresso. It's like kind of a s- very acidic. But you can actually, you know, particularly with washed coffees, I've found, if you add a touch of buffer to it, it really sort of makes it drink more, far more drinkable. Absolutely. And look, I think it's also part of the stuff where, look, uh, just from... Uh, experience like a lot of um, Scandinavian roasters because the water like particularly in Denmark and that is really hard so you will find that their roasting is really light um, because it's 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 there and so the ideal um, you know like I say what you what you cup in the roastery what you do your quality assurance how you do that negative feedback loop with the roast okay that doesn't taste good so we change this or it tastes great so you know we've now it's now passed quality assurance and we send it out and while they might be changing aspects with roast development you know end temperature start temperature 
charge weight, whatever they're changing. A lot of the times it's just it's just a reaction to how the water is reacting to that coffee and they could almost so it's almost the best thing if you understand the water, you buy a bag of coffee and it doesn't taste great the first time, like let's not throw it out. There's there's so many things. So I guess what we want to try and get out of this is understanding what uh, minerals in that water can do in order to get that. So if the coffee is too sour, a little bit of buffer. If it's a bit thin, maybe some calcium to increase the body. There's so many things you can do to um, enhance that end cup without having to just like throw it out and start again. Okay, so... The listeners listening at home, they're like, how do I perform this wizardry myself? We're trying to build some water, starting with you, Simon Gawther, and what are your steps to, uh, what are your tips, suggestions to the person listening to this at home? To make your own water. I guess not everyone who listens to this will want to make their own water at home, but I do encourage anyone, because it's a pretty tedious and time-consuming process. Like I've been making my, my own water at home for the last maybe six years, and it takes a lot it's a, it takes a lot of time, to be honest. And and you don't necessarily want to spend that kind of time. But the payoff is sometimes unbelievable. Uh, the payoff is unbelievable, trust me. But if, you know, most people might, I mean, it, there might be some people satisfied with the current option that they have and then it might not be worth necessarily like making your own water and then spending spending time, et cetera, doing it. But I would say that as um, an exercise, as a learning exercise, doing this test of tasting different minerals, as Jamie uh, just explained earlier, is incredibly valuable because... By being able to recognize what positives and what negatives each of these minerals bring in different concentrations, you can then use this as a troubleshooting tool or as a tool to sort of like understand how the coffee is tasting. Like I'll give you a very concrete example. I travel a lot for work. Um, I travel a lot around Australia for work. And something that I notice quite consistently is that in cities like Melbourne, our coffee has a lot less body than it does in Sydney. And the reason for that is, I mean, I know that by tasting coffee and then tasting multiple different waters and knowing how different minerals taste like, I can attribute that to the lack of calcium into the water in Melbourne and also the lower amount of bicarbonates, which will bicarbonates not only just reduce the acidity, but also bring structure and also bring body to a certain extent. It can also bring that chalkiness in higher concentrations as well. But by understanding how different ions, how different minerals impact the cup, you can then troubleshoot, you can then attribute specific attributes that we have in the coffee to specific minerals. And before explaining how to do that yourself and how to try that at home, I'll say one last thing around concrete examples that happen quite often. I've heard many, many times roasters giving feedback to producers or to importers saying, oh, I, I didn't like this coffee that much. It didn't have, it wasn't very vibrant. The acidity wasn't, wasn't great. It was a bit flat. And um, I thought the coffee was a bit dry. And this is all entire, this is happening on the cupping table, right? So know you can't really blame the coffee machine you can't really blame the brewer or anything like that we're doing a pretty standard cupping protocol with um, a roasting style that is within the parameters of the sca brewing style i mean a cupping style that is within the parameters etc but it's all it all comes down to the water it's it's because that roastery had very alkaline water so that it kills the acidity uh, there's a lot of bicarbonates into the water so it kind of flattens the cup um, there's maybe also uh, probably a lot of calcium as well that sort of bring this chokiness and then maybe some other ions that bring this, this little bit of dryness. But then this feedback goes to the producer and then, and then, you know, it was not necessarily because of the coffee. It could have been because, I mean, it was very likely because of the water. And being able to understand those different ions and how they taste is key to avoiding this kind of situation. To be honest, I feel like it's something even a lot of coffee roasters to this day still don't 100% understand or implement. So... 
that's, that's true. And, yeah, and like technicians don't that install water filtration system don't understand this either. Like a lot of the way people view water right now for coffee is mainly around: is it safe for consumption? Is it safe for my coffee machine? Um, it's more like a binary. Is it like a black or white situation? Is it filtered or is it unfiltered? And it, a lot of people see it as a uh, good or bad kind of situation rather than just what's inside. And it's the reason for that, I guess, is also because it's a massive rabbit hole. Like mm. coffee itself is super complex, as we probably all know. And then water itself is also pretty complex. <laughs> and we probably have enough with just one product already. Yeah. Look, obviously, if you want to get to the level where you're understanding what each mineral does, um, what we would recommend doing, uh, and there's heaps of guides online um, using uh, molar mass uh, of how to make solutions, uh, which is probably the best way to do it. Uh, so you want to create a standardised solution with each mineral, and then you can start adding that um, diluted to different brewing waters. Simon has a great one on his uh, on his Instagram at the moment, um, and there's but there's plenty of people you can find it. I would say though, if you're not at the step ready to do that, the best thing you can go out and do is just buy some different waters from the supermarket, but buy stuff that has the composition on the bottle or look it up. Um, I know when I started, you know, looking at how the effects of water was, it was probably about 15 years ago and didn't know how to do all this stuff yet. So we were buying different waters and um, I was lucky enough to have um, like Antipodes, which is a New Zealand-based water, sort of sponsor me through, uh, um, you know, a set of regional and national brewers' cups. So I actually kind of kind of reverse engineered it where I was roasting um, based on how it tasted with the water rather than changing the water for the coffee. But being able to, like having a really consistent product in a bottled water was, you know, and then you see a lot of people back then were brewing with things like Voss and sort of these bottled waters. And again, like Simon said, like we pay for these waters to be shipped internationally because they're very consistent they have a really good iron composition that's tasty so if you're not at the stage where you want to make solutions of these different ones just go and do just buy some water from the supermarket so you'll know to be consistent and then can you just do some tasting and compare a few different ones yeah cross-referencing like have a look at the label on the bottle like it usually tells you you know which ions are inside of that water and in what concentration um, very often expressed in milligrams per liter which would be the equivalent to ppm where we talk about ppm so if you read like 200 ppm of bicarbonate it means oh sorry 200 milligrams per liter of bicarbonate it will mean 200 ppm so just so everyone's on the same page so as jamie mentioned just buying a whole bunch of water from the supermarket and then like tasting them but also then looking at the label cross-referencing these would be very useful otherwise if you want to make your own water at home like it, it's just as simple as going to the supermarket or going to amazon or ebay just buying a whole bunch of food grade minerals so that you know they're safe t- safe for food consumption for human consumption not anything that can be toxic uh, if you're playing around with minerals at home just make sure that uh, you're doing that safely and responsibly obviously yes we must make sure that you do that we don't want anyone killing themselves so after listening to this there you go so anything food grades minerals um and you can buy that from uh, some stuff you can buy from the supermarket, like Epsom salt, which is magnesium sulfate. Um, sodium bicarbonate, you can just buy that from the supermarket as well. But then, which is which is bicarb soda? Yeah, in, exactly. Yeah, it's very easy to find. It's very cheap as well. So uh, you can start with these two as a starting point, but then buy other stuff on eBay, Amazon uh, for magnesium chloride, for example, uh, potassium bicarbonate. Some of them are a bit more expensive than others. What's the difference between magnesium chloride and magnesium sulfate? Well, you've just said it yourself. It's that negatively charged iron that's attached to it. So mm. they both have magnesium. So magnesium sulfate is composed of magnesium ions and magne- uh, and sulfate ions, and magnesium chloride is composed of 
magnesium ions and um, chloride ions. So what's the difference between a sulfate and a chloride? In terms of flavor, you mean? Uh, as a compound. Um, as a compound, to be honest, I don't know and I don't really care, but I just know how they taste. Okay. So magnesium sulfates taste, I mean, sulfate as a component, and that's a, that's a great test you can do at home. If you have both magnesiums and you try them side by side into coffee or into water, you'll be able to notice what the similarities between these two cups are, which would then be attributed to the magnesium component, and then those differences would be attributed to that sulfate or chloride components. And magnesium sulfate in small quantities bring out floral notes to coffee. They bring out this sort of like brightness and vibrancy. Again, they don't change the acidity, but they change your perception of brightness and acidity potentially in small quantities and bring a lot of floral notes like jasmine, for example, like black tea, green tea, like botanicals as well. But in high concentration, it starts to taste very, very dry and also very bitter. Think of overbrewed green tea, for example, like tannic almost. So it doesn't take much to if you if and we'll get to the concentrations in a moment. But it doesn't take much to over concentrate your water as well, does it? Uh, you mean to to go too far in one of those? Uh, yeah, when mineral? you're making the concentrates, it yeah. doesn't take much. Like oh no, for example, like when we talk about one liter concentration, if we wanted like a good number to work with, in our opinion, is usually one thousand ppm. So basically, one gram per liter. Um, for magnesium sulfate, you're looking at basically dissolving like 2.5 grams of magnesium sulfate into one liter of water. So that will give you really two. That will give you 1,000 ppm concentration approximately. Okay. And that's that's pretty concentrated. Like, um, good luck to anyone drinking that straight no. up. <laughs> and then from there, I guess typically with something like magnesium sulfate, we're probably looking at the 40 to 60 parts per million as a sweet spot for in your coffee. So you're going you so. You, so from two and a half grams of the solid salt diluted, dissolved in one litre of distilled water, gives you a thousand. You then have to dilute it again by another factor of 16 to get to sort of 60 or by a factor of 20 to get it to 50. So you're looking at another dilution to get it to probably an acceptable coffee brewing range. Sounds like a fighter jet's flying over the Zestrosary right now. Big one. Yeah, probably just start because they're running late, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, so just to finish on the chloride, the chloride component, like it will taste different from sulfate and it's usually um, a little bit sweeter, a little bit rounder. It brings nice texture and body, but in a high concentration, it feels a bit salty and very high concentration. It feels like you're drowning in a swimming pool. And again, why? Because we put chlorine in swimming pool. So there's a lot of these things that you actually notice in, in real life where, you know, Magnesium chloride can make you feel like you're drowning in a swimming pool if you use too much of it. And then the, the sweet spot is probably like roughly the same. I, I personally love magnesium chloride a, a bit more than magnesium sulfate or just the sulfate and chloride component. I have a slight preference, but it depends on the kind of coffees you're brewing. Um, but you, by adding one or the other, or maybe both, you can bring different attributes to your coffee. It's good. If you, I mean, again, if you can do multiple testings here, because you can find calcium chloride, then you can find magnesium chloride and magnesium sulfate. You're able then to sort of isolate what the magnesium brings to the table with the sulfate versus what it brings to the table with the chloride and then what the magnesium with the chloride does compared to, say, the calcium with the chloride. So you'll have chloride in sort of different solutions. So you will start to see similarities of what those ions actually bring to the cup yeah. um, by having them across things. Okay, so what, what I might do in the show notes is sort of break down you know, what amount of each of these substances we need to add to yes, distilled to water to, ma to make yeah, Everything will be linked to the footnotes. But as yeah. Jamie just meant, he mentioned just something very interesting and very, very important for people to remember, which is 
again, we we don't know what magnesium on its own tastes like because we can't get magnesium on its own. It has to come with something else. But the only way to... Is that really that negative and positive yeah, charge? Yeah, exactly. It has okay. to come with something else. Again, magnesium on its own is positively charged and then it has to come with a negatively charged um, uh, ion. And so we, we can't taste it on its own. But the only way to really know what magnesium tastes like is to cross-reference it on the table. So have magnesium sulfate and magnesium chloride, for example, and maybe magnesium carbonate. And the suggestion that I would make is... If you want to have a pretty big understanding of, of what the seven most common ions we find in water um, would taste on their own is doing that cross-reference by using magnesium chloride, calcium chloride, potassium chloride, sodium chloride, and then you can add magnesium sulfate. You have this understanding of sulfate and magnesium a little bit deeper, and then sodium bicarbonate and potassium bicarbonate. These seven different minerals will give you a really good base to do a whole bunch of cross-referencing and comparisons to know exactly what bicarbonate brings on its own, what um, sulfate, chloride bring on their own, and allows you to build this really strong understanding of to what each ion brings to the final cup. But maybe just to wrap up on your question around the like, difference between magnesium chloride and magnesium sulfate, when we say I add 100 milligram per liter or 100 ppm of magnesium chloride to my water, we're not adding 100 ppm of magnesium and 100 ppm of chloride, or nor we are, are we adding 50 and 50. There is a split between these two that differs from one mineral to another. And for example, typically, magnesium chloride would have a 24 to 76 split in favor of chloride. So it has, for, for every 100 ppm we have, we'll only have 24 ppm of magnesium and 76 of chloride. So the one ion needs to be married to two ions. To what the one positive pretty much, charge. That's element. pretty much what it is. Okay, yeah. right. And you also have like different different weight and different density. That's also why the numbers like change. But if you now look at something like magnesium sulfates, it only has twenty percent magnesium and eighty percent sulfates. So the sol- like if you're adding one hundred ppm of both, you gotta keep in mind that the magnesium chloride one is gonna have twenty percent more magnesium for the same total ppm, the same total concentration of these two substances. So And then you can do the same thing. You can have a look at all of these different minerals. You look at uh, potassium bicarbonate versus potassium chloride. You notice that potassium chloride has a lot more potassium in proportion to, um, to the bicarbonate one. So it's also one of the reasons why they would taste different because they're not like a 50-50 split. Okay. So you're the person listening at home. You've heard all this. It's a big read. Take a breather if you need to. Let's get into it now, though. We want to make some water at home. Right now. So let's say, for example, you go to the shop, you buy Epsom salts like we walk, spoke about before. You can buy bicarb soda um, for, for, your, for, your, um, for your buffer, for your alkaline element. Um, then maybe uh, you, we, we mentioned calcium as well. Sometimes I get it from a pool shop, you know, calcium chloride used to raise the hardness in water for swimming. I'm not sure why that people do that, but it gets done. Um, so there's three right there. One thing that our good friend Carlos Escobar got me onto was potassium bicarbonate. And shout out to Carlos, I miss you. Um, what's so? I guess you know to de- to tell the difference between potassium bicarbonate and sodium bicarbonate. Again, like we've said before, <laughs> go out and taste them. But so these are some things that you can go and do. And then of course, deionized or demineralized water. And so you're dissolving certain uh, amounts of these into deionized water to make one thousand part per million concentrations yeah okay so and then we get those concentrations and then we add them 
to demineralize water again. Yeah, so let's go through a step. If you want to break it down step by step, we can we can do that just for listeners to maybe go through that section again and then just maybe re-listen to it a couple of times. But I like the first thing you want to do when you take, let's say, magnesium sulfate is figure out how much we need to dissolve, how much magnesium sulfate we need to dissolve into one liter of water to get that 1,000 ppm concentration. And it's not as easy as just doing the same for all of them because they have different density. Um, they will require a specific amount to give a specific concentration. Now, the first step to figure out how much you need to dissolve is to calculate what we call the molar mass of each of these minerals. I'll explain what molar mass is in a second because that's looking at me like... Are we going to finish uh, this at 10 p.m. or um, is this going to be another chemistry course again? <laughs> no, it's like Alan from The Hangover when he's got the calculations going through his head. Oh, it's yeah. exactly that meme, yeah. But just a quick definition of molar mass. It's a way to measure how heavy or light a substance is um, on a per-molecule basis. So it tells you the, the mass of a mole, which is a specific amount of that substance's molecule or atoms. Just a very simple way to think about it. Think that you have a box of candies and you want to know how much one candy weights. The molar mass will be telling you the weight of one candy, even though you have many candies in that box, basically. So we have a specific quantity of population of those magnesium um, sulfate ions, and we need to figure out the molar mass of that. Easiest thing to do is just to check on Google the molar mass of your magnesium sulfates. Just keep in mind that Magnesium sulfate, because it's in solid form, might come in, in different levels of hydration. And the most common magnesium sulfate we find is it's called magnesium sulfate heptahydrates. And that level of hydration is going to change the molar mass. So it's important to know that because it might change your concentrations. It might change your dilution numbers as well. So you look at, for on Google, let's check on Google, magnesium sulfate heptahydrates, and it will tell us 246 gram per mole as a molar mass. And then you take that number, very simply, just divide it by 100, and then you'll have 2.46 gram of magnesium sulfate that you have to dissolve into one liter of demineralized distilled water to get a 1,000 ppm concentration. Yes, and that's very important for people listening at home. So you're getting 2.46 grams, you're adding it to one liter exactly of demineralized water, which will make you your concentrate, That's which is stock, one, yeah. 1,000 parts per million of whatever that, yeah. of and magnesium. And then we're not using that to brew straight no, away. You're not going to pull that into your kettle and brew. That is your concentrate. <laughs> no. I guess, um, yeah, to get that understanding, what, um, what you're saying, what molar mass is. So basically what, just to give it back, to go back to the high school chemistry, a mole is a specific number of atoms. So it's uh, Avogadro's number. So it's 6 times 10 to the power of 23 to give you an idea of how many atoms that is gives you the molar mass of each atom that's around the universe. Everything that you can see has a molar mass attached to it. Um, and it, you just you could look at a periodic table and it'll give you, you know, the number, mass number, and so you sort of add them all up. So what you're saying was something like uh, magnesium sulfate is the best example to look at because, I mean, you were talking about before about these, um, what was the word you used about the hydro... Hydroscopic. Hydros- yeah, so uh, it is... It, it, so magnesium sulfate, as you'll see it... Um, the best way to describe it is it's like a wet-looking crystal, right? You think about sodium chloride, it looks really dry. It's just like pure white crystal, right? But when you look at something like magnesium sulfate, it looks it looks like it's been wet already and it's because it's surrounded by a different number of water molecules. So it could be six or seven is typically what you would find. Um, so that affects then the molar mass of what it is because you've got to add up each of those water um, 
molecules into the total weight and that's what you get that and that's why but when we talk about we've made a, a 1000 ppm solution of magnesium sulfate then people will just say that well that's 100 ppm or 1000 ppm of magnesium well it's not because that whole thing is only 20 percent magnesium so that's where we've got to think about those numbers being kind of not irrelevant like more of a like a a marker or a reference point but it's not like this is what my water is because it's not really true all right so 2.46 grams of magnesium sulfate to make a 1000 per million concentrate if we're going to add our alkaline element what are, what are we looking at for bicarbonate in the easiest one to get from the supermarket which would be um, sodium bicarbonates that's very very easy to get um the molar mass of this one is 0 0.95 grams per mole, I believe. Um, but somehow, because it's, I've never really understood this, and I've, I've spoken to a few people, maybe Jamie knows the answer, but I've spoken to a few people who are uh, quite prominent in the field of chemistry trying to understand that. When you dissolve 0 0.95 grams of sodium bicarbonate into water, you'll probably be reading 500 uh, ppm and not 1,000. So with the bicarbonates, so sodium bicarbonate and potassium bicarbonate, you always have to double that number to get 1,000 ppm. So instead of using 0 0.95 grams uh, per liter, you should use 1.90 grams per liter to get 1,000 ppm for sodium bicarbonate. I don't know if anyone that listens to the show um, knows the answer. I you know the answer. answer that. So why we're doing that is because the reference in this, what we're doing here, is all to do with the calcium carbonate number. And because it's like a, a one carbonate to bicarbonate, it's the two to one ratio. So everything that we're doing around molar mass has a reference against calcium carbonate because it has a molar mass of 100. And so the idea that it's um, we're referencing that to round the numbers and make it easy, that's why anything with a bicarbonate has to be doubled because we're referencing it against a single carbonate of calcium carbonate. That makes plenty of sense. All right, thanks for enlightening me. Bi meaning two, bicarbonate. There you go. Okay, yeah. all right. So you also do your, your 1,000 ppm concentration of sodium bicarbonate and you have these two concentrations, one of magnesium sulfate, one of sodium bicarbonate. Okay, and then if you wanted to be real fancy, like we were talking about before, so we've got a magnesium, we've got, which you've, you've previously re referenced to me as like the seasoning, um, mm -hmm. like you've even referenced it today. So it's like the seasoning or the salt that you'd add to a dish. What, what would you say buffer is? Like the... Um, it's the opposite of acid. I think it doesn't really exist in cooking because most of the time we add acidic components to a dish. Like and what, what, uh, what are we going to call our calcium then? In this, uh, uh, calcium is almost like straight up, not not quite, but almost like straight up salt. Uh, sorry, there's um, sugar mm -hmm. uh, that you can use. Like it adds so much sweetness. Or mm -hmm. any again, calcium comes with something else. So you got to remember that if it's calcium chloride, calcium on its own is sweet, chloride on its own is sweet. So calcium chloride is like you double down on sweetness. But if you're using calcium carbonate, it might not be as sweet because carbonate is not as sweet as chloride. So you got to think of it as when you look at calcium chloride, you need to look at two things bound together. So if you decide to say that in cooking, um, your calcium would be equivalent to sugar and your chloride is the equivalent to, I don't know, like, um, I'll say something very random, but like olive oil or butter, then when you add calcium chloride, you're adding sugar and butter, for example. Like you can't add just sugar, you can't add just butter, you have to add these two together. And then if you look at magnesium chloride, if we decided that chloride is our butter because it has this nice texture, and we decided that magnesium is our salt, then it's like adding salted butter, basically. But again, we can't add just salt, we can't add just butter, they always have to come together. But you, just to keep it super simple, you can start with these two, just like 
And I think I'm pretty sure is that how you started making your own water at home, yeah, Jamie? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like I mean again, I love the analogy of the calcium to sugar um, because what it not only adds sweetness but it adds body. So you think about if you um, have an espresso and add sugar to it, not only are you adding sweetness but you do increase the the body of it because the sugar just has sort of adds a richness. Or so like you do, you sprinkle some sugar into a into a sauce or into something and just kind of increase that texture. Um, yeah, and that's how I've sort of always sort of um, looked at it as well. Okay, so we're making co- we're making back to making concentrations at home. Mm-hmm. So we're making some brewing water. So say for example, you want to put I don't know ninety gram ninety nine grams of um, or hundred grams of uh, the concentrate we've made of magnesium sulfate. Would that be is that a reasonable number? I mean, yeah, it's a uh, quite hard. Probably, I, I would always recommend to just like go a little too hard and then strip back or you mm. can always do it the opposite like use not enough and then just top up but let's say you want to make a, a water that it, that has a total tds of a uh, hundred ppm um you can and you'll say oh, i want to use like 80 percent of that magnesium and 20 percent of that um, uh, sodium backup what you'll have to do is because we've made there's a whole point of making 1000 ppm concentrations yeah, because we've made weird. this is the important part for everyone to understand that's i mean it might sound complicated why we you know why don't we just do like 1 gram of each of these into 1 liter of water because now it's going to like things will get easier from now if you want to add 80 ppm of magnesium sulfate into your brewing water all you have to do is take 80 grams of that magnesium sulfate put that into a new container and then now we want to add 20 ppm of that sodium bicarbonate, which is at 20 gram of that combined with that 80 gram of magnesium. And then we have a base of 100 ppm, uh, 100 gram of these two concentrates. But as Jamie mentioned earlier, these two concentrates are sitting at a 1,000 ppm concentration. So they're way too concentrated. So we need to dilute them with distilled water to basically bring them down to that target of 100. So again, we have that 100 ppm, uh, sorry, 100 gram solution of this 1000 ppm concentrate of these two minerals and then we're going to top that all the way to one liter so we're going to add 900 grams of distilled water or demineralized water so that we have a 1000 gram or one liter gram uh, one liter concentration of these two combined and again we'll have 80 ppm of that magnesium sulfates and 20 ppm of that sodium bicarbonate okay so again people so we're getting 2.46 magnesium into one liter of distilled 1.9 grams of bu- sodium bicarbonate, mm-hmm. peppering that into uh, again one liter of water, adding 80 of the um, magnesium in this case, and then 20 of the buffer solutions or concentrations, then adding 900 grams to top it up to one kilo or one almost, liter, or just about one liter, um, and then you've got homemade brewing water. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty simple with only two different minerals, uh, four different ions in there. And I think it's always a thing to keep in mind, like how many ions do I have? Like not just the minerals that we have, but again, looking at it at this in, under this like iron form, because it might be that you want some more magnesium into your water, but then your level of, I think if we're, if we're doing that exact same recipe, I think 80 ppm of magnesium sulfates is not going to be suitable for every coffee. As you mentioned, it kind of has like a ceiling of around like 60 in your opinion. Yeah, look, for me, I think I have a, a, a much lower threshold for the sulfate. Um, so if I wanted to, if I wanted to have, and I'm going to air quote, 80 ppm of magnesium, I'd probably want to do a mixture of the sulfate and the chloride uh, to get to there because I think I'm much more sensitive to what sulfate does to the water rather mm-hmm. than the magnesium. So, 
yeah, again, it's trying to understand what the minerals do. Um, yeah, so if you just add more, you remember you're adding more of everything um, because they're all together in the solution. How long, moving on to the next one, if I may, the, the shelf life of these solutions. So it's not like you can just keep them there for months and months and months and you go back and they're, they're the same as they were when you first made them. What, what, what kind of shelf life are we looking at? And you have uh, concentrations over there that we can taste if you want and they've been sitting around for a couple of months and, you know, you won't die from drinking them and they'll, you know, you'll still recognize each of them. But because they're sitting in, they're basically like, I think there's maybe like one liter left in a two liter container. There's a lot of oxygen in there. It's not like, there's, there's a lot of headspace in that container. Um, they're going to taste pretty different from when they were fresh. So... That, like short answer is you can keep them for a long time and then or like more complicated answer is uh, after even just a couple of days it will start to taste different as soon as you open that vessel as soon as you open the container it will start to shift in flavor profile let's say it will start to oxidize and then give uh, a slightly different results but again if it's just to make your water at home like you're not necessarily going to uh, discard that water every single time you make it because you're super pedantic around like um, how it's tasting Look, I think as well, like, is, is obviously, again, really happy with these little vials here. They're in glass. So it depends, like, what the material you're so holding it in. Is it a plastic bottle? Um, it's also water is, you know, everything here is quite light sensitive. Uh, obviously, heat as well. So you think about if it's quite hot, you might get some little bits of evaporation. You won't realize that, you know, a couple of grams of water evaporation changes the concentration greatly. Mm-hmm. Because um, you're kind of distilling it to the ingredient that you've added, yeah, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, and then, um, obviously, depending on the mineral, so as we talked about, things like your calcium carbonates or your calcium chloride, uh, which are a bit harder to... If you've just left them in sort of a room temperature solution, they'll start to go, well, we're going to start hanging out together again. Mm-hmm. So you'll start to see some precipitation out. So you might see a, you know, a little bit of sludge at the bottom of your container. Uh, and so the idea is like, well, without... If you don't recombine that correctly... If you go to use that water to brew with, you're not going to have the same concentration. So you're still going to have a really great result, but it's not going to be as accurate. But again, if, you, if you're able to, say, make a couple of batches, hold it for a week, make another batch, do a side-by-side, it's a really good way to, again, to sort of... Um, again, yeah, short answer is you can keep it forever. Uh, long answer is it's not going to be as great. So like anything you have, it's, it's got a shelf life. And, and maybe for people who are listening, like we gave some examples to make concentrations at home at 1,000 ppm uh, using a one liter batch. You can also do, like for example, the bicarbonates. Uh, you won't go through the bicarbonates uh, very quickly. Like uh, I rarely use more than 10 ppm of bicarbonate for a liter of water, for example. So that would be 10 grams of that one liter solution. So that, that would mean that I could make 100 liters of, of brewing water for, with that one liter of um, bicarbonate concentration, which I'll never go through all of that before it goes, um, before it kind of like expires, and I'm air quoting as well. Um, so what you can do is just make less. You can just divide the amount of, uh, of minerals that you use by two and then just do a 500 gram um, concentration. Or you can even do a 100 gram concentration. Or maybe if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to make it super concentrated, you can increase the concentration by 10. So by adding 10 times more minerals or reduce the amount of water by 10 by using the same amount of minerals and all of a sudden you have a 10,000 ppm concentration. And then with that kind of concentration, just a couple of drops of that specific mineral into your water will make a massive difference. Hmm. All right. Um, one thing I wanted to... We, we've got a point here. I feel like we've touched on this... Uh, Already, but let's let's drive the point home. Think about brewing like baking. Quality of the ingredients, 
Accuracy of measurements as well as technique is important and water is an ingredient. Yeah. Okay, so I guess obviously how do you source this, uh, these uh, salts is really important. So we talked about what's available at the supermarket, where you could get them, either eBay, Amazon, food grade. You know. So obviously the quality and the purity is really important. So I think when we started the podcast talking about salt and the effect of salt and what makes a good salt is obviously the purity. So uh, magnesium sulfate, again, I'll bring that one back up because it's probably the easiest one available in Epsom salts, but you just really need to check what it is because, again, it will be slightly different. Uh, so how much, how many water molecules are surrounding those magnesium sulfates? Obviously, you change that mass, so when you go to dilute it with a recipe, it will actually change the concentration. Um, so, yeah, so as far as that and obviously accuracy of the measurement, so making sure that if you are making a 1,000 ppm solution, it is a 1,000 ppm. So if, you're, if your solutions are off, then every sort of step as you go along to then go, well, I'm aiming for 50 or I'm aiming for 60. If you're not starting at 1,000, if you're starting at 950, well, then you're going to be 10% less, 5% less. So it's going to change that. So the accuracy of the measurements is really important. Yeah, and um, I mean, this is something that I'll give an example. Like my magnesium, I have a tub of magnesium sulfate and I use it very often, like on a weekly basis. I open the tub and I close it. And then Sydney is not particularly a, a humid city, but then, you know, just by, because there's, there's humidity in the air, like I usually open the tub and then I close it almost like straight away after. But I've had this up for maybe six months now. And my my concentrations have changed. They were initially 2.46 because I'm using magnesium sulfate heptahydrate. And now if I want to get 1000 ppm concentration, I need to use 3.06. So because it's got a lot of humidity and, and now my concentration has changed. So maybe something for, to keep in mind for the listeners, if you're not getting exactly 1000 ppm, it might be because of the purity of your minerals that you're sourcing. It might be because of the level of hydration uh, of the minerals that you're sourcing. Again, like if you look at calcium chloride, you can find different levels of hydration. The ones I use are uh, calcium chloride dehydrate, but there's other levels of hydration and that will change the molar mass. And and that the age of your minerals, like how of, like how long have you had them for? Have you opened the tub uh, many times? Um, did it sit sort of like an open air in your kitchen counter? And this will change the concentration like very drastically because a lot of these minerals will attract uh, humidity and moisture. So beyond the chemistry that we've discussed, what do we need to understand about the physics of creating our own water well what does water do so once we've created it we've talked about the chemistry we've talked about concentration of minerals but so what does it do mechanically when we add this to the brew so obviously minerals are going to add energy to the water um, so again if you think about having, requiring the energy to break down um, the salt salts to dissolve them but as we heat them up the interaction of the compounds within the water change the energy of the water you have so a really good example of this if you want to do something if you've got those concentrates is just do a cupping with them and just see how like foamy your uh, crust will be so the idea is that these minerals create more energy and so they will change how they how they interact with the coffee so the idea of like say uh, brewing a, a v60 with a really high uh, PPM water, you get to get a, get a you know, really foamy, almost carbonated um, blue. Um, and the, like that carbon dioxide that you're trying to, you know, not get into the into the cup itself, it just, it's going to be much more aggressive. So the, the, what changes is the amount of energy that's in the water with these minerals. And that's, that's very interesting because it leads us to another point, which is do the minerals, do these minerals impact the extraction process? And 
it's an interesting, I mean, you've, you've looked into this topic, uh, you started 15 years ago to look into this topic. I've been looking into water uh, only six years ago, but I've, I've read and heard so many like contradictory, uh, contradictory things about that. It's hard, hard word for me to say. Um, a lot of contradiction around this topic, around whether or not the minerals do impact the extraction process, or are we just tasting, you know, differences in water because we, these minerals have a specific flavor and specific taste. And, what Jimmy just mentioned is is very important here. If you're using very high concentrations, you'll notice like you'll notice evidence changes to the, the dynamic of the extraction. Like you'll notice this sort of like foaming process if you're brewing with one of these like 1,000 ppm concentrated. If you're brewing with a very hard water from the supermarkets, and but the difficult thing to really figure out whether um, this foaming has an impact on the extraction if it's efficient or not or if it's changing the flavors just through the extraction process is quite challenging to dissociate because when we taste that coffee we'll also be tasting all of these minerals that are they're not stuck into the paper filter they're not stuck into the coffee but they're in our brewing water so we'll be drinking those like let's say 1000 ppm of uh, magnesium sulfate and the drink is going to be very overwhelming because it's going to be way too much magnesium. It's going to be way too much sulfate. But there's also, you know, changes to the way the coffee tastes because of that extraction process. So it's quite challenging to dissociate the two. But I guess one way that you could do that is try to brew with this, uh, with this really concentrated water, taste the brewing, like taste the final brew that you have with, you know, that highly concentrated water that you're brewing with. And then do another cup where you're brewing with distilled water and you're remineralizing to the same concentration with that super, super hot water. And then kind of have, like trying to figure out if, if this really impacted the extraction process. And it's a really interesting exercise to do. Yeah, I mean, that's something we did at um, our Sub-Zero pop-up last year. At only as I was, as I had a, in my brew bar, we had such a range of coffees we had from, some from wash geshes to super fermenti. And rather than trying to construct a water, uh, to suit all of them, we brewed with the distilled water and then we uh, bypassed with uh, a different concentration of minerals to season them, essentially. So it's definitely something from a consistency point of view that if you brewed with zero ppm water and then seasoned them afterwards, you could definitely do that. Uh, we did a little bit of that at Patricia at our last pop-up in Melbourne because we were doing everything through a, a plumbed Fetco. So we weren't able to obviously control the brewing water going in. So being able to sort of control the result afterwards uh, where you don't have full control was sort of what we were looking at and getting sort of the best flavour out of it. And also like that's tailored to customer preferences because then you could ask me how do you like, I mean, how do you like your coffees? Do you like them bright and uh, juicy and acidic or do you like them heavy and sweet? And then, you know, you, you don't have to change your brewing process. You can just change your remineralization afterwards, which I think is pretty cool. So yeah. remineralization remineralization after this is literally just adding some of these concentrates yeah. or solutions that we're talking about. You usually about. want to concentrate them. I, I guess that's what you did. You had the pretty high concentration, so yeah. like you're not like diluting them too much with water. And no. mind you, we're adding this to litres of batch brew as well. Yeah, we were doing that, but obviously at only we were sort of doing like three to four grams of a concentrate to a 200 gram brew. Um, but yeah, you know, adding sort of 30, 35 grams of these concentrations to it's sort of two and a half litre um, batch brew. Uh, basically what it allows you to do, again, if you're, if you're a cafe that has a, a large menu of coffees that might span from washed Ethiopians to fermented Costa Ricans to natural Brazils 
to Indonesian grown coffees, instead of being able to have 30 kettles with 30 different coffees, brewing with a base water and being able to mineralise each cup and tailoring that. And I know that when we did it only, I started serving people the straight up brews and then here's like a taste of what it was and this is what it became. It's pretty cool for people to really grasp the difference that it makes. Yeah. And we'll be doing that again soon, just by the way, October the 8th, as a coffee project, Sydney. Very cool. I mean, I don't know many cafes around the world that do this kind of experience, but it's great to educate customers around like how do minerals impact the water. Like you, you know, you pour a little bit um, out of the carafe into a cup, and then the other cup has um, has all of the minerals, so that people can really see how this impacted the the final cup. And this is my hope for this, and you know, why we do it at the pop ups and why we're doing this podcast is that you do it at home as well. You know, like yeah, yeah how much fun it would be if we all sort of. A, develop the skill set to be able to do this. Yeah, and absolutely. And then B, you know, apply it. It's a, it's, a, it's a good way to look at it as well because there's a couple of the, obviously we're talking a little bit about the physics of water here. So obviously once we add heat to these, they do change how they act and how they behave. So having a solution that you've made at room temperature and then adding it to coffee is going to just give you, I guess, a straight up effect of what the seasoning's done and the chemistry's done rather than once we've added heat. Because as we, uh, add, we add a lot of heat to particularly really high concentrated water, the behaviour of that water changes drastically. Um, and so this is a really good way to sort of start doing like those, like if you do, if you can make a one litre of coffee at home with a base water and then split them into say five cups and then sort of, you know, put a little drops of a few different ones, it's a nice way of sort of doing a straight up comparison without having to build so many separate waters. Yeah. Um, and then brewing them and then obviously having the other effects because at the end of the day, it is just one component of your brewing. So, uh, while there is a, there is a physical aspect of what the water does, it's just something that you will then adjust like, okay, I need to change my grind size or I need to do maybe, you know, you might do uh, two times grind weight for your bloom. You might now do three times your grind weight. So it's just, it's just a variable that you're adding to it. So we're just trying to add consistency. It's interesting that you, I mean, you're now touching on the, on the variable side of things because again, like for those of you already trying to get their head around grind setting and, and um, brewer's shape and then um, the, paper filter type that you're using and all of these different var- brewery issues, like all these different variables that we have in, in coffee brewing already, this might be another layer of variable that's also super complex. But maybe one thing for, for those who are maybe still a little skeptical around like how water impacts coffee and is it really worth it? I, I don't think I've really changed my grind size for pour overs in maybe like two years. Like I literally don't change my grind size anymore. I'll maybe change a brewery ratio every now and then, but like 90% of the changes that I make to my coffees are just the mineral composition. And I find that this is the most efficient, precise, and predictable way to change, for example, the level of acidity in a coffee. Um, If I'm struggling with dryness, it's very easy to reduce dryness by changing the mineral composition. If I want a little bit more body and sweetness, I can easily change that. So I find that this is the most precise way to change specific attributes in coffee, rather than, for example, when you change grind size to your coffee, you're going to change, like let's say you go finer, you get more body, you probably reduce the acidity and then you get a little bit more bitterness and then all of a sudden the textures change and then we get a heavier body, like literally everything's changed. And if you ha- were pretty happy with how your coffee was tasting before, you kind of have to r- almost entirely redial it again because everything's changed. So if you want to make a small tweak to your cup, grind is probably just 
to why live it change. And this is this is um, this is probably a really good segue into the next point that we had, which is like, what's the difference between water that tastes good for coffee and water that's sort of safe for a coffee machine? It's like like we were saying before, the technician might just install the filter that they know won't create coral inside the inside the the boiler. Um, and what we're talking about is making water that makes coffee that optimizes the you know extraction process or you know optimizes the flavor of coffee. Absolutely. So I guess at the end of the day, like you said, a technician's there to put in a water filter. It was a bit it's very much thought of as black and white. Is it filtered? Is it unfiltered? Now, unfortunately, we still live, I guess, in a society where we have thirty thousand dollar coffee machines making four dollar drinks. So the the it, really from a business end of things, <laughs> you 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 want to protect your asset uh, above, you know, maybe being able to serve a drink that's like five percent better. So obviously what we can do is, you know, you can do stuff at home and you can do stuff in espresso machines. But um, again, the calcium thing is the hardest one because again, once you start adding, uh, once it starts getting with the carbonate, you, you, you touched on it earlier when you asked about why we use, you know, demineralized water for irons and, um, you know, and cars and things like that because we don't want that build up. So typically the filtration you see on, um, on a coffee machine is specifically just to protect the coffee machine. Um, so I don't know, Simon would like to talk about... Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we discussed earlier was around optimizing the flavors of coffee and then understanding how different minerals taste uh, in coffee. And then that's kind of under, like with the underlying assumption that we're doing cupping or that we're doing filter coffee because that's quite easy to make your own water and then just chuck that into the kettle and then just drink it straight away. But now you mentioned coffee machines. It's a whole new world <laughs> because... Again, there's a difference between water that is safe for a coffee machine, assuming that we're talking about a coffee machine with a stainless steel boiler, which would be the, the vast majority of, um, of, machines in, of coffee machines in 2023. And there's a difference between what tastes good in coffee. And as Jimmy mentioned, calcium is literally, well, something that you should be afraid of for your coffee machine, for your $30,000 assets, because... Again, with carbonates, uh, it will bind and it will create a lime scale, and that's going to, well, basically destroy your boiler, and which is one of the most expensive uh, pieces inside of your coffee machine. So you don't want that to happen. But what happens a lot of the time when we look at the filtration system is that calcium is almost entirely removed from the equation, depending on where you are and what kind of filtration system you use. Um, again, we see calcium as this like bad thing for the coffee machine. But I can guarantee you that calcium tastes delicious and if there's maybe one iron that i don't want to cut i mean i don't really want to cut magnesium either but uh, there's a few others that i don't really want to cut but calcium is really really good and it is key to get sweetness and body in coffee so now the question is how do we get a good tasting water into a coffee machine and another iron that would be terrible for coffee boilers would be chlorides chlorides um i don't know exactly what they would do to a coffee machine but i i do you know that every time I mention chloride to a coffee technician uh, or to anyone that works in a water filtration uh, system company, they kind of freak out. And it's kind of something that, something that everyone is afraid of because it damages your coffee machine. But chlorides taste oh, I think great. I think the easiest one for here, obviously, this is an audio medium, so we can't show it. But if you just Google chloride damage on a stainless steel boiler, it, it just is really corrosive. It starts to just to eat away at the metal and... You see pit holes and, and then to a point where you just get full boiler failure. So obviously when we think about calcium carbonate, we're talking about build-up and lime scale, so things like blockages. and you know, When you get probes at that, obviously fill rate changes, but yeah, chloride itself, uh, it'll just eat through a stainless steel boiler. We did see some coffee machines doing copper boilers, 
Uh, but obviously, it's copper is quite expensive and uh, it's a lot more expensive than stainless steel. So and it comes with other issues as yeah, well. Absolutely. But, um, that's a good point. I mean, and, and you could say, well, why don't we just um, demineralize water entirely, like strip it from all minerals with a reverse osmosis system and then just not put anything back into it and then just have water with, uh, with no minerals into the boiler and then just remineralize afterwards, which you could do. But the absence of bicarbonates will usually mean that you have what we call galvanic corrosion inside of your boilers, which is also, also not something that you want. So you do want some carbonates. Uh, or bicarbonate ions into your water to avoid any sort of damage to the boiler. So we kind of have to add something back into it. If you're using reverse osmosis water, water that has been stripped from all minerals, and again, because carbonates or bicarbonates don't come by themselves, it's usually found under the form of magnesium carbonate or calcium carbonate, or in some cases, a mix of calcium carbonate and magnesium carbonate in the same remineralization cartridge that we see on most coffee machines. But again, this is something that I mean, I've, after speaking to a lot of cafe owners, roasteries, and even um, importers, and a lot of coffee technicians, not a lot of people look at the type of remineralization cartridge that they put or at the type of um, water filtration system they put. But again, the right filtration system or the, uh, the right remineralization that you would put would make a massive impact on the way coffee and tastes. So, so this is a, a matter of choosing the, the filter cartridge that is attached to your coffee machine. You know, choosing the right one for your area, you might have and like tailoring it to your water supply as well. For your area and also for what you want to get out of your coffee. Again, it depends on your rows and it depends on what you want in the final cup. So this has to be taken as like a, as a whole kind of, um, but definitely like it um, it has to be taken in conjunction with with your area. Uh, definitely, that's probably the first thing to look at. Like what's inside of my water straight away, and then um, the first question is kind of. Is the water relatively safe? Like, how much do I need to treat that water? And if we're in Melbourne, the water is actually pretty great. If we're in Canberra, the water is great as well. So there's not too much to do to that water. Like, you probably need to apply a very high-level um, carbon filter that will remove just some of the heavy, nasty stuff. But then you could almost, like, use it straight up, and it won't really damage your coffee boulder. But if you're in Perth, for anyone in Perth listening to us, you cannot use the tap water from Perth into your coffee machine. Like the Measured we TS, have, um, uh, I mean, there are some equipment height. manufacturers who, you in the, unless you put certain filtrations or you have a specific spec of your water, you automatically void your warranty. So obviously it's one of those things to be mindful of because the last thing, you know, it, most of these machines are coming with 12 or 24-month warranties that, you know, three months in, they've got boilers leaking water all over the bench because you've put the wrong water through there. So obviously that's really important. Again, the idea that primary filtration for primary purpose of filtration on these coffee machines was to protect them not to make the drink tastier but one thing that is i think really important to mention on that if again you're in a cafe or you own a cafe and you want to improve the quality of your coffee and you think that i mean some water filtration systems can get pretty expensive and then can get pretty fancy right but then when you like i know that you love to look at the economic side of things jamie and this is when, for example, like in Australia, it might not be uncommon to look at a like $4,000 to $5,000 package for a really good RO system, like reverse osmosis system with remineralization, with, with maybe the servicing for the year and then maybe the installation, et cetera. Like we're probably looking at $4,000 to $5,000, but then you'll be making a lot of coffees with that filtration system. So the cost per cup would be around, from the calculations I did, it was under one cent per cup. Yep. to substantially improve the quality of coffee. Just to find reverse osmosis for those listening who may not know. What, what is a reverse osmosis system? A reverse osmosis system. So you're getting the water 
stripping it of the stripping it from basically like most of the minerals that would be in the water so what usually happens is depending on the water input that you have like if you have water that it, for example in in the office right here our water is sitting at around 120 ppm from the tap so it's not it's not very hard it's actually pretty all right but actually it doesn't taste really good because again in that 120 ppm we don't know what's in it mm. and the stuff that are in it actually not very good for coffee uh, it doesn't really taste good in coffee um what reverse osmosis will do is basically will strip between like 90 to 99 percent of those minerals and just like basically remove everything out of it and then part of the system as well, when it refeeds into your coffee machine, you'll have a remineraliz- remineralization yeah. cartridge. So like you're saying, you've got 120 parts per million water, but you don't know what's in it. So you're adding some more positive. Yeah. So, I mean, if we, this is something that we're looking at with Zest uh, Coffee at the moment, because we supply coffee to cafes all around the country and then the water quality all around Australia. I mean, Australia is a very big country. Um, for those of you who've never been to Australia, like it's, it's just pre- pretty much as big as the US, right? It's like it's massive. The water changes so much from a city to another. And we want our coffee to taste the same and to taste really good in every single city. But again, water is such a massive hurdle for us. So we have to look, I mean, are we going to roast differently for our customers in Perth or our customers in Adelaide? I mean, it's just too much work. And it's even then you will never be able to get the same results. But the only way to get the same result is to use reverse osmosis to remove I guess in, in Perth, you probably struggle to remove everything from the water or it'll cost you a bit more money to do that. But if we get a base with no mineral in every city, like we use reverse osmosis in every city, have water that has zero ppm, and then we use the same remineralization cartridges, then we will have a lot more consistency because we know that we've removed everything from the water and then we add a specific combination of minerals into our water afterwards. And then there's, there's a few caveats here where, for example, the depending on the cartridges of uh, remineralization cartridges that you use, it will change over time and then from a day to another, like for example, with the magnesium carbonate, sometimes you just have offloads of magnesium and then we, we just get a lot more magnesium all of a sudden uh, because it's a little bit more soluble than uh, calcium carbonate. And as your cartridge gets older, you might get less minerals inside of your water. So it will change over time. Like it will never be exactly specifically like let's say 30 ppm of that calcium carbonate that we're remineralizing with, but it will be a lot closer to... Like each other cities will, uh, each city will be closer to each other because we would have the same system everywhere. But you need to start with a base that has literally nothing in it. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to recreate the same cup profile. Have you experienced that as well, Jamie? Like yeah. tasting the same coffee in different cities? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like Adelaide, Perth are probably the two that stand out, or regional Queensland. So the source water where it comes from. And uh, look, even to a point when uh, regional Victoria, um, just going down the surf coast is very different from what Melbourne is. And you'd be, you know, a 60 to 90 minute drive away. And, and because the where the water is being drawn from into the venues, it's just coming from a different source. And so it's, yeah, it's completely different as far as like its mineral composition. I've got a point here, stored energy in water and what that means to extraction. Have we covered this? We Was touched it? on that with, yeah, with the hardness and bloom and, mm. yeah, so. So no need to go on that again. How to improve water in your cafe with Sequential Man and RR. I suppose we've done that too. Yeah, I mean, there's, again, there's, there's still limits with what you can do with your cafe because there's certain minerals that you can't have or, for example, with calcium, you just can't have too much uh, because it will damage your boiler. So 
you kind of have your hands tied with, like, you're very limited in your actions for your cafe. If you have a coffee machine that has a stainless steel boiler. But we're starting to see more and more machines that, uh, you you know, work with induction or heat exchange that don't have this boiler anymore. And tomorrow I'm actually testing, testing one with water that I customized and we will be able to try custom made water with this machine that has um, that uses induction heating to warm up water and heat up water so it doesn't store water into a boiler which means that you can use any type of water you want and that will be an opportunity for us to try because it, it's quite difficult to be able to try like the kind of water that we can use for example for filter brewing or cupping with espresso machines because again that water might taste great for a cupping or for a filter brewing but then you can't use that water for espresso machine but you're starting to see more and more innovation around machines mainly around the fact that we're kind of cutting the boiler entirely from the equation um, the whole idea of doing that is not necessarily to be able to use fancy water for your coffee but it's mainly because when water sits inside of a boiler the boiler has to keep the water warm and that consumes a lot of energy and by just using induction heating induction heating is a very efficient way to heat up water and by only by using induction heating when we're making espresso it means that basically we're only heating up the amount of water that we need. So an espresso is a really uh, double shot espresso is usually around 80 grams, 80 mils of water. So it means that if you're using induction heating, you only need to heat up this amount of water, which is it doesn't consume a lot of energy. So the Halo machine that I was testing today um, has it basically just reduces your electricity bill by like 90 percent because it only uses energy when you're actually using it and and it can heat it up that quick, and that it's it's. I was very surprised. Like, um, I, I'm not sponsored by these guys or anything. I was just testing their products, and again, with any new coffee machine, I'm always a bit skeptical with all sorts of innovation because we haven't really seen any major innovation. But I found that the more you use it, the more stable it was because then the internal circuits stay hot and mm. they stay warm, and then you don't need to reheat them again. But um, if you're not making a lot of coffees in a row, it might take a little like couple of seconds like maybe five seconds to heat up every single shot but if not it would like you i made a hundred like i made 50 coffees in one hour um yesterday morning which i think is pretty good on a single group machine and it didn't it didn't have any issue with consistency so um again this kind of innovation doesn't come from the idea of being able to reuse tasty and and really fancy water but it might be the opportunity to look at different ways to use uh like better tasting water or your espresso machine. Yeah, I, look, I love that idea. And obviously at this stage, Australia is a great, usually a pretty good testing ground for new innovations. We've got pretty high volume coffee shops here where we love to test out things. So, I mean, it's a perfect little piece of equipment that you could you know, put next to your traditional machine and see that how different results you could get out of it. Um, obviously, yeah, we've talked about the opportunity to, if you want a consistency, particularly if, the, if you're a coffee roaster trying to distribute across a whole country or you're, say, a multi-venue company that you, you want to have consistency, uh, then, you know, looking at those things like RO and the Remin cartridges, uh, there are just so many in the market. and You just need to know what they actually do. I think that's, the, like I said, like it's hard because, again, priority is usually protection of the machine. So, like, look at talk. So, talk to people who might say, well, "Okay, this will add this, and this will add this." But what you actually you might be able to do multiple cartridges in an inline system and be able to, you know, um, dose up different minerals throughout the piece uh, to not only obviously get the best product out of your espresso, but obviously make sure you're keeping that maintenance of the machine. 
Well, I mean, my hope from this podcast was that people could listen to it, make better coffee at home, make better coffee at the cafe. Like, for example, one thing you could do to make what better coffee at home is you go back through the, um, you know, creating the concentrate steps that we spoke through. You know, try making a little little doses of uh, concentrates that you can add to your batch brew as soon as you've made it. And that's one thing you can instantly do to improve the quality of your batch brew. So, I, um, yeah, I really I wanted to I wanted to wrap up now, guys, and um, and really drive that point home. But is there anything you wanted to sort of finish on uh, that you sort of had boiling uh, simmering around the mind there? Um, I think we've we've pretty much covered everything we wanted to cover. I think the the hard thing with this topic is that it's uh, it's a pretty vast topic. Like it's pretty infinite. It's a it's a rabbit hole. I mean, even more than a rabbit hole. I think, in my opinion, even more than a rabbit hole, like. Uh, things that were like grinders because we're talking about a whole separate component like it's separate to coffee it's the other ingredient that we use to brew coffee and it also happens to be incredibly complex so um, I guess by all means like Jamie and I do not pretend to be experts um, in in this area or massive like experts in chemistry but we do have pretty extensive um, experience in playing around with different mineral composition in water to be able to understand the impact that it has on the final cup I guess that's maybe one thing that I want to emphasize again from my point of view. Um, as much as I like science to be able to understand things, I think that if you look at the coffee industry compared to, let's say, the cooking industry, a lot of the innovation that we see in cooking comes from chefs. And chefs, you know, while some of them might have a, a pretty okay understanding of physics and science, there are people who use, you know, their intuition. They use their feelings and they're sort of like they project what a dish could look like um, their vision basically to be able to cook and to be able to tweak a dish and in coffee I see I hear a lot of people um, refer to the um, to the extraction percentage that they have in their coffee and to uh, what the TDS of their brew is and um, what ratio of general hardness and carbonate hardness their coffee is and I think this is in my opinion again this is very subjective but I think it's a major mistake because we're trying to put numbers on coffee, which can be helpful for communication purposes and to understand certain phenomenon around, especially around extraction. But I don't think it helps you make better coffee. I've been using coffee refractometers for years and I've actually stopped using the two refractometers that I use because I don't think it helps me make better coffee. Sometimes like for filter coffee, you might say, I want to aim for a 1.3 to 1.4 TDS cup. And then every now and then you'll get a 1.1 brew that tastes absolutely amazing or sometimes you have a 1.9% uh, TDS uh, that tastes amazing which kind of defeats all the laws that we have around what's a good TDS range for coffee and again when we look at TDS for coffee it doesn't take into account the water that's inside most of the time people don't really take that into account and I think to me it's a pretty major mistake to look at coffee with numbers only I think we should look at coffee with a little bit more intuition and Again, to treat it more like cooking, like use our understanding of, you know, what happens when I change my grind size? What happens if I, if I do this? Or what happens if I um, add a little bit more calcium, et cetera? And then just make those decisions based on your understanding of the impact of individual variables onto the final cup rather than getting stuck into conversations around numbers. Yeah, look, I, can, um, I agree with that. And I think that's... I think that what, for me where the numbers are really important is, like you said, it gives you a reference point. Uh, more or less we'll do this. But I think the understanding of what each component does to it, uh, again, thinking about water like you would a grind size. Um, 
So I, I did this with my grinder, so it led to this, right? But that's never always the full story because, like, a perfect example um, is that you find a lot of people who will grind their batch brew too fine because they think they grinding finer will increase extraction. But really, with the batch brew, you need to go coarser because inevitably you cause channeling with that much coffee. So it's always, like, sometimes, like you said, like, it's testing things to – and sometimes they might not make – sense or what you things but it's trying to un- it's more about getting an understanding and saying okay well i think well, for me I, I think we sort of said it earlier i think water is probably the easiest and cheapest uh, way um to get a better cup of coffee and like, like simon says he doesn't change his grind setting like for ages and i think that's a really good thing because the thing it's like you said instead of going down it's not even a black hole. It's like a black hole now. It's not even a rabbit hole. It's like, you know, so you can get stuck in that and um, you can get stuck chasing um, something that you will never achieve. So the idea of like, okay, we want to get understanding of what these things do. And I think the idea of using these minerals as seasoning and um, just treating the water, I guess, with almost the same reverence and uh, respect that we give the coffee. I mean, to a point now, if you think about the first single origin that I was served, it was just called a Colombian. Here's an Ethiopian. That's it. Now we can talk about farmers, processing, um, roast styles. There's so many different um, markers that we've sort of get. And, like, you know, you'll see people that say, oh, I only like wash coffees or I don't like this type of ferment. Like, they're already associated one aspect of it to a positive or negative thing. Not thinking that, hang on a minute, this coffee was brewed completely differently with a completely different water. So I think it would be great to see like water treated with that same sort of revenance as that we treat the actual coffee itself. Yeah, I 100% agree. And uh, to everyone listening to who's listened to this now um, and made it through, it's uh, I hope you see coffee as an equal variable as everything else in your brewing, whether it's espresso or filter. But on that note, I want to thank you guys. Oh, sorry, did you have something you want to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I think there's a really good opportunity for those who can come to the pop-up in Sydney. Well, I hope this comes out before the pop-up. Oh, well, it will. Um, mm-hmm. that, um, that we'll definitely have a coffee on bar that you'll be able to try with multiple waters. Okay. So, well, there you go. You heard it here first and you get to try it there first, perhaps, unless you do it first. But thank you for um, – we've, we've spoken about doing this podcast for a few weeks now and um, I, I know we we're all very excited to do it and – feel like it's a good one for people out there to you know often we uh, get biographical details on on uh, on people when i interview them but this one's been very much like it's a service to people that you you've both provided so thank you once again um but as always everyone uh, thank you so much for listening and please stay cool.